invite you to open your Bibles to um, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1. And we're going to look at the same five verses that we began looking at last week. Um, I hope to get through these five verses tonight and that we don't spend multiple weeks here, but you never know. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up after he had given the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Pray with me. Our Father, we pray that the Spirit of truth would come and speak truth in our hearts. The Spirit of life would come and breathe Breathe life into us. Lord, we are desperate for a word from you. I pray that you would give me great clarity tonight in communicating your word. I I pray that any words that are mine and mine alone, that they would fall to the ground and they would blow away. But Lord, let your words remain. And may they change us. And I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Um, I grew up in a church where the Holy Spirit was rarely mentioned. Um, It's not that my home church didn't believe in the Holy Spirit. I mean, of course, of course we all believed in the Holy Spirit. Um, We just weren't sure what to do with him. Um, He he was kind of, the best way I could describe it, he was kind of like when you're at a family reunion and you have that Uncle Eddie or that Uncle Bob um, there and you only see him once a year. You know you're kind of related. Um, you're not exactly sure how. Um, and when you go, you know, you hear him telling these cool stories about strange things. And, and that annual hug is always just a little bit awkward. And, and that's how I kind of grew up feeling about the Holy Spirit. It's like, well, I know we're, we're family. I, I, I know there's a love between us, but there's just some things I don't understand. And it's a little bit awkward when we are together. Um, Once I went off to college, I was involved in a ministry with a much different experience. Um, There was a heavy, heavy emphasis on the Holy Spirit, almost at the exclusion of everything else. You would almost forget there was a trinity. It was the Spirit this, Spirit this, Spirit this. And people were consistently talking about these extraordinary experiences that they had with the Holy Spirit. Um, and instead of being like, you know, my, my strange little uncle, there in that ministry, uh, the Holy Spirit was talked about in such intimate terms, it, it kind of made me blush at times, the, the way that they would talk about the Holy Spirit. And so I've been to these, these two different camps have been a part of my life. So how should we view the Holy Spirit? Um, what does the book of Acts, which we'll be looking at for the months ahead. What does Acts teach us? Um, last week I, I mentioned that we could 
just as easily call this book the Acts of the Holy Spirit, for he is the main character here. As we go through this book, you're going to see people will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. They will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, The Holy Spirit will speak through people. People will prophesy through the Holy Spirit. Heal people through the Holy Spirit. People will be convicted of their sin because of the Holy Spirit. They will be given instruction from the Holy Spirit. People will be called into missions through the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is the main person working throughout this book. Sometimes in the forefront, sometimes behind the scenes, but this book is about Him. And so you would think that since He is everywhere in this book, that it would be pretty easy to come up with a pretty clear-cut doctrine of the Holy Spirit based on the great book of Acts. But it is not that easy to do that. And um, the sermon tonight, as, as I try to explain why it's not that easy and, and what are the things we should believe, the sermon tonight is going to be a little bit different than how I typically preach. I'm going to slow down a little bit more. It's going to be a little more technical, I guess, or a little more details. We're going to go through uh, more scripture than normal. You're going to have to pay closer attention to really hang with me. I, I could just tell a lot of cool stories about people being filled in the Spirit, you know, and, and we could, you know, have this, you know, big rah-rah rally here, but I want to teach you about the Holy Spirit. And I want us to, to, to walk through systematically, how does he move in Acts? What are some of the issues here so that you'll have a greater understanding? And, and if we have time, um, I might even have uh, some, some question time for y'all. And we could do a little Q&A before we close the service and song. Um, when reading through Acts, or reading through any narrative in the Bible, you have to ask this basic fundamental question, is what we are reading, is it being prescribed or is it being described? Is it being prescribed to us? Is, is Luke, when he writes Acts, saying that this is something we need to pursue? This is something that needs to happen to us? Or is Luke just describing events, saying this happened and it's not repeatable? And you have to decide, which, which is this? Is this... The normative Christian experience that's being described here, or is this an extraordinary experience that is never to be repeated? And so you have to answer that question. You have to be very careful as you read through Acts. Um, You have to try to discover what is the author's intent. How does it read in in light of the rest of Scripture? Um, For instance, you know, let me just throw a little confusion your way. If you're going through Acts and you want to try to answer the question... So when exactly are people filled with the Spirit of God, according to Acts? Is it, are people filled with the Spirit of God um, before they confess, uh, maybe when they confess, or maybe after they confess their trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior? Is it, is it before, is it during, or is it after? And the answer in Acts would be yes. Yes. You see the Holy Spirit, at times he, he falls upon people before they believe. At times He falls during the act of belief. And at times He falls after they have already believed. And so when He comes to something like that, and it comes to time to prescribe something to people, what do you prescribe? 
And many theologians, they, they love the book of Acts because there's something for everybody. You know, every denomination is going to go to Acts and it's going to pull, we believe this about the Spirit because of this story here. And then somebody else is going, no, 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 you're all wrong. We believe in this about the Holy Spirit because of this story right here. And all you can take from what seems to be conflicting stories is, well, that, that happened. But what is being prescribed here? It's a little more difficult. You're going to have some of these same questions of, you know, what and when and how often concerning the issue of the baptism of the Spirit. Um, this is why I, I wanted to start our discussion about baptism of the Spirit last week. When we looked at it, I wanted to start our discussion by not teaching about the when, not teaching about the how often, um, because I don't want you to get bogged down into that and just think if you could check a little box and all of a sudden, you know, this, this is something that's happened or you can feel really good about yourself. I want you to think, first off, what is the essence of what's being talked about here? And in Acts, we see that the baptism of the Spirit is when one is filled with God's Spirit and clothed in power for witness. And we saw that last week. And when the disciples were baptized in the Spirit, they were not bringing in themselves a new theology. They were not bringing in themselves a new doctrine. They were actually having an experience with the living Jesus through his Spirit. And I realize that Talking about um, experience is uncomfortable for a number of people. Um, it's, a, it's a lot easier and a lot tidier just to talk about the theology or, or the, the doctrine. But we do see here clearly that there is an experience that these disciples had. Because Jesus knew that in order for the disciples to be effective witnesses for him, they were going to need the verifiable facts, which we looked at last week. They would need to know proof of his resurrection. Shows them many proofs. I am real. But then they would also need to have that experience of God's presence in their lives. They needed both. In order to have power for witness. Now, there were a number of questions that I left unanswered last week. That we're going to look at tonight. Here's some of them. Does, we'll look at the main one here. Does this experience of the Holy Spirit... This baptism of the Spirit happen at conversion? Or is this something that we are to seek after conversion? Um, is this something that we, we, when you are regenerate, when, you, when the Holy Spirit changes your heart, when God changes your heart, is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Or is it after you have confessed, after you become a Christian, this is something we should seek later? And let me just say at the very beginning that you can be an orthodox Christian in good standing and hold to either one of those positions. Um, many of my favorite theologians um, hold both sides, both of those positions. Um, so I just want to say that at the beginning, that you can hold to both of these and still be in orthodox Christianity. Um, so let's kind of walk through this. Um, 
When I first began really walking through this, I thought I got some clarity, and then I realized it was somewhat of a difficult issue, and then I started reading everything, and there's probably, um, I can't think of a Christian subject that, that I've read more about over the last 20 years. Um, one time I, I, I got to sit down with Dr. John Piper, and I asked him, I was like, all right, um, because I studied him for five or six years, and I said, all right. Dr. Piper, I've, I've gone through five years of your messages um, concerning the issues of the Spirit. And it seems to me that you are saying that when you are saved, you're baptized with the Spirit here. But then in this message over here, you seem to be saying that, no, no, we are to seek the baptism of the Spirit after we are saved. But then you go back over here and you say this, and, and then you say this over here. It's like, I'm really confused. Which do you believe? Um, and, and I will always remember his answer. Uh, he goes, well, Joel, um, hmm. I guess I was being purposely vague. It's like, wow. I guess I was being, and I thought it was such a cop-out answer at the time. At the time. But I, I, I don't think so much anymore. Um, I've learned to respect it because the, the more and the more I study the Spirit of God and His work in our life, the more I realize it is hard to put very sharp lines on something that has somewhat blurry edges. It's not that they don't have edges, but they're somewhat blurry edges. Um, for instance, how, how much of the Holy Spirit is required for something to be called a baptism of the Spirit. Exactly how much of the Holy Spirit do you have to receive? Um, and when does this baptism end and then filling with the Spirit begin? At what point is it? Can, can you quantify that? Um, and are these subsequent fillings of the Spirit, are they all of the same amounts? Or do you have different levels of fillings with the Spirit? Um, it's hard to kind of put sharp lines on this. You know, let's just look at the question, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It is clear from the book of Acts, which we're going to see, that Christians did not remain permanently filled with the Holy Spirit in the same sense as what we find in Acts 2-4 at Pentecost. When we read in Acts 2-4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues, um, in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So when the Spirit of God fell at Pentecost, and they were all filled with the, filled with the Spirit, that was not a sustainable filling in that same way. Otherwise, you could not have in Acts 4.31, if you want to flip the page, when you're talking about the same group, and it says, and they were all filled with the Spirit. So, but they were already filled with the Spirit. Back in Acts 2, and then it says later, two chapters later, and they were filled with the Spirit again. And so it at least seems like there's some part of Pentecost that can be repeated here. Um, that there is, seems to be a further giving of what the, these people already possess. They already possess the Holy Spirit, but now there's a further giving of the Holy Spirit. And this happens throughout the book of Acts. This further and further giving and this is why um, the Westminster Confession states this about the Holy Spirit. It says that while the Holy Spirit is given to all Christians, 
His working is not in all persons, nor at all times, in the same measure. The Holy Spirit is given in different measure at different times. So it's hard to say concretely, this is exactly what baptism is. This is exactly what being filled in the Spirit looks like because he is given in different measure at different times. And so sometimes the lines are a little blurry. And this is why we can have Jesus doing things like in John chapter 20, breathing on the, whole, breathing on the disciples and saying, receive the Holy Spirit. And they receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says, now wait for the Holy Spirit. Because there's different measures of the Holy Spirit being given. That's where these blurry lines come in. So when one is filled with the Spirit, we don't know with how much measure of the Spirit one's filled with. And and I personally don't know how you measure the Spirit of God. I mean, I don't know if you use gallons, liters, if you you step on a scale, do you weigh more, do you weigh less, depending on how much you are, how you're filled with the Spirit. It's, It's not like any kind of measurement that we know. You know, God knows how, how he fills and how, how much measure he gives. I, I cannot figure that out. I think that there are times when Luke and the Apostle Paul both even mention being filled with the Spirit and they mean different things, different measures. For instance, if you go through Acts... Every time it says somebody is filled with the Spirit, just watch what happens afterwards. I mean, it's awesome. Somebody's filled with the Spirit and they'll get up and preach this amazing sermon with boldness, something they could have never put together on their own. Or, or they'll do this incredible miracle. Or they'll prophesy or something. Amazing happens when people in Acts are filled with the Holy Spirit. Something extraordinary happens. However, when Paul talks about being filled with the Spirit, let's say in Ephesians 5, he doesn't say this is something that just kind of comes upon you for this occasion or for this extraordinary thing. He says, be continually filled with the Spirit. You could go ahead and you could turn to Ephesians 5 if you want to. In Ephesians 5, he um, he says in verse 18, he says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. And that filled with the Spirit is, is, in Greek, it's a present active imperative. It's meaning, I am commanding you to never stop being filled with the Spirit. But the result of this kind of being filled with the Spirit isn't miracles. Isn't extraordinary things happening. It's this, it's this deep, abiding joy is this fruit in the Spirit. Something sustainable. You're commanded to always be filled. It seems to be used differently than how Luke uses it when he goes through Acts. You can actually, I think, see two different measures in how the Holy Spirit is given just within the book of Ephesians. And so we've seen this here, and you know, be filled with the Spirit... In Ephesians 5, and if you go back to Ephesians 3, which we looked at a few weeks ago, verse 14, 
It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What's being described there seems to be the Spirit given in greater measure than just Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. In Ephesians 5, Paul can command this. Every Christian, you are to be filled with the Spirit. Here in Ephesians 3, he doesn't command, but he prays. God, may you grant this to us. And it's going to require that you strengthen us. And you strengthen us again, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. That seems to be something extraordinary. And he prays for that. And, and so I think even in Paul, you see these different measures of the filling of the Spirit. So, so with all of this in mind, hopefully it's a little clearer than mud, um, let's walk through what exactly this baptism of the Holy Spirit looks like. Um, there are only seven times in Scripture that we have the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit. Only seven times. Um, four of the times is in the Gospels, each Gospel, and they simply say that Jesus will baptize in the Holy Spirit. There's no real description of this. There's no explanation. So all we know is Jesus will baptize in the Holy Spirit. Um, we have two times in Acts. We have one here in what we just read, which we know was fulfilled in Pentecost. And then we have one in Acts 11, um, which is kind of like Pentecost for the Gentiles. And Peter refers back to the original Pentecost and says, yes, this is the baptism of the Spirit. And then we have once by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, in looking at these, different traditions have developed. And I already mentioned one of these traditions is that you are to seek this baptism of the Spirit after you are converted. Um, I do not believe that. And let me give you a few reasons why. Um, for starters, Paul, n neither Paul nor any New Testament writer ever prescribes being baptized in the Spirit to Christians. Never. Paul never writes to Christians and says, you know what you need to do? You need to be baptized in the Spirit. He never says that. Um, however, in many Christian circles today, and one of the ministries that I was involved in for years, it was the main topic of teaching. It was the cure-all for everything. Struggle with sin, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You need to know what to do in your life, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Your marriage is falling apart, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. I mean, it was, it was the answer for everything. Um, it was a cure-all. And I just find that if the baptism of the Holy Spirit was that important for after salvation, that important for Christian living, that, that Paul just might have mentioned that. 
or that some New Testament writer might have prescribed that. It's extraordinary that they did not, if that's the case. Also, we find in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says that as Christians, we have all been baptized into one spirit. He says, as Christians, we've all been baptized into one spirit. Um, Just as you think of it as water baptism, just as water baptism is this rite of initiation into the church body, into Christianity, and it only happens once, it's the initiation there. Spiritual baptism is also seen as an initiation into the faith, and it only happens once. Just as water baptism is a common experience that we share with all Christians, spiritual baptism is a common experience that we share with all Christians. So the Spirit of God, I believe, the baptism of the Spirit unites us, not divides us. You know, um, it's interesting. When I, when I worked at a college ministry, University Christian Fellowship, for about 10 years, and uh, a number of times I would be preaching, and afterwards I could have somebody, and usually it was some adult that would come up. I specifically remember this one guy, he came up to me, and he's like, man, you're just so anointed up there. And anointed, and he probably said anointed 50 times. It was like, you know, and just God's spirit was just flowing through you and saying all this on and on and on. And then he asked me something about baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I said, well, actually, I believe that you are baptized in the Holy Spirit when you're saved. And he goes, whoa, whoa, we, we got to get that fixed. I was like, we got to get that fixed. And I was like, you, you were just saying anointed, anointed, anointed. You were just saying Holy Spirit flowing through me. And now because you, you see that I believe something different, now I am a second class Christian to you. There's now two tiers in your Christianity. The Spirit's no longer uniting us. Now the Spirit of God is dividing us. And he went on to say, hey, 95% of the people I lay hands on receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Can I do that now? And I said, not if you want to keep your arms. I I didn't quite say it like that. I was probably thinking that. I, I, I know I did say, actually, sir, there is nothing that you have that I want. Nothing that you have that I want. But people come to this issue and sometimes it, they use it to divide instead of to unite. But the Spirit unites us. Um, many of my friends and theologians I greatly respect believe in this baptism of the Spirit as a second work of the Spirit, mostly based, not all, but mostly based on an experience. Um, and h- how can you argue with an experience? How can you argue with that? Um, I can't argue when I look at their life that they've had an experience. And I believe in experiences of the Holy Spirit. I think we should seek them. I think we should desire them as Christians. I am glad when people have experiences of the Holy Spirit. It's fantastic. But I think these experiences need to be interpreted rightly. And what they are seeing in this experience isn't the baptism, but it's maybe a filling. It's maybe more measure and more measure given. 
Sometimes this filling of the Spirit can be a, a wonderful and it can be a super emotional thing. Sometimes it can be more quiet. But I would expect, as a lot of people, my friends, when they describe being baptized in the Holy Spirit, they're like, well, what I did is I confessed all my sin. I just surrendered all my life to Jesus. And I just spent all this time fasting in prayer. And I think, well, it's probably likely that you did have this great, enormous step in your spiritual life. I would say you're filled with the Spirit. I'd say your Ephesians 5 is happening. And I think sometimes when that experience is extraordinary, not just like your day-to-day walking with God, walking with the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, but sometimes there's that extraordinariness to it. I think Ephesians 3 might be happening. You're being filled with all the fullness of God. God's like, wow, look at your, look at your width, look at your height, your depth. Oh, you just got to hold me together because the joy is so great. I think you could, that could be what Martin Lloyd-Jones, what we looked at last week, you know, those few times when, when God picks you up and he, you know, spins you around and holds you. This, I believe those times happen. It can happen with an extraordinary feeling um, over and above what we would see as a normal feeling of the Spirit. Now, we are to pray for this feeling of the Spirit of God. We are to do this. Um, When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, we know what he taught them as the Lord's Prayer. You know, our Father which art in heaven. After he taught them the Lord's Prayer, he said this, explaining some more. He says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it will be opened. I mean what father among you if his son asks for a fish will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And Jesus is saying here that the, the, the greatest gift, how much more, the, the greatest thing that we could ask for is the Holy Spirit. And we need to ask and we need to, we need to ask and we need to seek and we need to knock. Meaning this needs to be a persistent asking on our part. You, you've heard me say several times that Jonathan Edwards when he would write about Um, being filled with the Spirit, he would say a lot of times we deny ourselves the very, um, we deny ourselves the Spirit by the way that we ask for the Spirit. Because we ask for the Spirit of God in a way that does not express that He is the greatest gift there is. We ask with such half-hearted devotion. We ask with such little frequency. We ask after we've gotten all the real things, the real problems that we want God to fix in our life. Let's get all those out of the way first. Oh, yes, and then fill me with your spirit. And Jonathan Edwards say, just by the way we ask, we actually deny ourselves our request. But Jesus says that we are to knock, to ask, and to seek, and to knock. 
and that the Holy Spirit is far greater than any healing, any comfort, any wealth, anything we could ask for. The reason it's greater in any of these things is because Christ, or the Holy Spirit, is Christ's presence in our lives. And I would say as a Christian, if you long for more of Christ, if you long for more of Jesus in your life, then you will long for His Spirit, because that is how His Spirit, how He is manifest in your life. And I would encourage you not to make the mistake that so many people do as we go through Acts. Um, in which it's just a subtle shift. But you can begin seeking an experience instead of seeking Christ. And I just want to warn you about it. Some of you want to leave here and you're like, I want to be picked up and spun around. You know, I want, I want the chill bumps. I want the whole package. Give it to me. And you're, you're going to go about seeking this experience. Don't seek an experience. Seek Jesus. Seek Him with all your heart. And if you want to see the Holy Spirit come into your life, you want to see the Holy Spirit really move into this church, the best thing you can do is try to lift up the name of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's going to go, there's an opportunity to lift up the name of Jesus. I'm going to go there. And He will fill you and He will empower you because He lives to make more and more of Jesus. We seek a person. We don't seek an experience. We seek Jesus, not just some impersonal power. I mean, let's just be honest here. Our confession that we read earlier. John 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to, to your advantage that I go away. Do you believe that? I mean, be honest here. I mean, we've talked about this before, but really, do you believe it's better? Would you rather have Jesus next to you right now, you know, with his arm around, you know, Jesus right there with you? Or would you rather this, or do you believe this is true? It is for our good, it is to our advantage that he goes away. I mean, we've seen what presence means in people's lives just over the last three weeks when the tornadoes came and there's just utter destruction. How much did it mean to the people when, you know, President Obama comes or Condoleezza Rice comes and actually walks with these hurting people? You know, these powerful people come and bring healing, in a sense, with their presence. I mean, it's, there's real healing kind of there. Totally different if they're not there. But Jesus says, no, no, no. When I leave, it is for your good. Do we believe that? I think a lot of us are like Mary, and we see Jesus who's resurrected after the tomb, and we hold on. We're like, don't leave. And he's like, you've got to let go of me, woman. <laughs> I, 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 I need to ascend so I can send the Holy Spirit down. Because then I will be with you in a way that is much better than this. I will be inside of you. And not just you, but in all who believe. It is for your advantage that you let me go, Mary. It is to our advantage that Christ go away so that he might send us the helper, his Holy Spirit. 
And I pray that would be a reality and we would really believe that in our lives. Um, If you would pray with me. Jesus, we love you. We want to live our lives to your glory. We know that in order for us to do that, we need to be filled with your Spirit. We are commanded to. And your Spirit will bring forth fruit in our lives. It will help us to testify about Jesus. It will deepen our worship. It will help us to resist sin. Make us holy. And so we do pray that you would give us more of your spirit. We pray this for the glory of Jesus and in his name. Amen.